My name is MD. My name is Kyle. And you are listening to The Completist, a podcast where two music fans come to terms with the albums and artists that have shaped pop culture. Welcome to episode 14, and today we will be talking about Metallica's 1986 album, Master of Puppets. <laughs> I saw you throwing goats there. I mean, this is definitely the album for it. Yeah. So Metallica had been a band since the early 80s, and Master of Puppets was their third studio release. Mm -hmm. And this is where the kind of thrash metal sound that, um, I mean, I don't think Metallica really innovated that sound, but they certainly kind of brought it together and presented it, repackaged it in a way that, um, that became very popular sure. and helped to really popularize, I think, metal as, as a genre that, that people enjoyed beyond just kind of the, the fringes of, uh, of kind of some underground scenes and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Some of the other guys who would have been their peers at the time would have been bands like Megadeth. Uh, Anthrax. Uh, of course, Slayer. Mm -hmm. And again, all kind of culminating in the mid-late 80s into somewhat of a mainstream form, and I think Metallica really paved the way for that. Master of Puppets, in the context of Metallica's catalog, I feel like really comes off, almost segues right in off of Ride the Lightning mm -hmm. from 1984. I mean, you listen to that album, and it feels like they've already, they're refining a lot of the sound and their approach. Um, you, you're getting some increasingly intricate arrangements in some of the songs. Yeah, the uh, songs are a little more emotive, too, from the Ride the Lightning record. You had kind of gems like Fade to Black, which all of a sudden you find uh, acoustic guitars and melodies and that sort of thing. Yeah, so they're, they're adding all of those things together. And then really you're getting some more mm -hmm. expansive compositions. Of course, they had those on Ride the Lightning. but it, So it's kind of moving beyond just kind of the fast and loud thrash metal approach from their debut, Kill mm -hmm. Em All, from 1983. So of course, there's lots of good material in those earlier albums, but it it really seems to me like Master of Puppets emerges as the most clear statement of the band's musicality, their themes, and their style. And, you know, that's something that they carry with them throughout the expanse of their career, mm -hmm. even to this day. Yeah, songs from this record appear in almost every show that they play. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that Master of Puppets is obviously a fan favorite mm -hmm. and probably their most played song of all time mm -hmm. live. As you know... Metallica is kind of outside of my wheelhouse, it would seem, yeah. with a lot of my musical background, of course. Stuff that's a little more mellow, stuff like, you know, a lot of the jam band stuff, Fish, Dave Matthews, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. That was stuff that I really was attracted to when I was in high school. But Metallica was a band I actually got into, and I got into them pretty hard. I mean, I had about four or five of their albums. And, um, and of course, the original pitch to you for Metallica was which song? It was it was one uh -huh. off of And Justice for All. And I had I had gotten together with a youth pastor at the time, and I was just sitting in his car uh, after after church one night or something, and I was just flipping through his CDs in his car, and I saw that he had the single to one mm -hmm. off of And Justice for All sitting there, and I asked him about it, and he kind of secretly admitted to like loving this this Metallica song mm -hmm. and and I put it in you know I had preconceived notions about metal because I it, to me it just it was all loud it was all fast it was all distorted and it kind of all sounded the same mm -hmm. no dynamics or anything I wasn't expecting any sort of dynamics I wasn't expecting any sort of like um, more dynamic uh, compositions and some some of the some of the guitar lines and some of those things and so when I heard that song, it just, I mean, it, it was very attractive to me, actually coming from some of the jam band stuff. I mean, like long songs, that wasn't an issue for me. Mm -hmm. So like an eight minute song, like I, I didn't need it to be three and a half minutes, you know, right. to be happy. So anyway, all of those things kind of hit me all at once. And I, I ended up really enjoying Metallica because I felt like I found in them something that, um, I felt like I understood kind of what the interest in 
a metal band might be, although I didn't really have someone there to pitch to me something like a Megadeth or, or any mm-hmm. other any of the others that are that also do a lot of the similar things, but I just didn't have someone there to make a pitch for that. Well, I think that's a really good example of your approach to it and how they were able to communicate that into a mainstream audience. And of course, the Injustice for All record falling after the Master of Puppets record. Yeah. So that would have been on the heels of the success of Master of Puppets. So yeah, that's a great example of how their structures would have communicated to someone like you who, um, like you said, already had Mm -hmm. a preconceived idea of what you expected. And it totally uh, kind of blew off uh, those uh, preconceptions. Yeah. And so how did you come to, I mean, I know Metallica was probably a, a facet of your You've been into metal for a long time, so Metallica was probably there, kind of in yeah. the background at least, if not in the forefront in some ways. Yeah. Uh, by the time I was 11, 12, 13, when I started uh, learning how to play the guitar a little bit, uh, Metallica, along with all the 70s rock, things like Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, mm-hmm. even some Rush and that sort of thing, were already kind of on my radar. And among my group of friends, they're the ones who kind of made the pitch to Metallica to me. Even going so far, I have this kind of fuzzy memory of them. Uh, they wanted to name our first band Creeping Death. <laughs> And since I didn't know who Metallica was, they claimed they made that up. Like, oh, we just came up with that. You know, the band's going to be called Creeping Death. (laughs) Well, you know, it turns out that's a track from Ride the Lightning. (laughs) And we were actually playing or attempting to play things like For Whom the Bell Tolls and Uh Fade to Black. And I think we could, again, that that shows kind of how Metallica would translate. There was an element of Metallica even novices could kind of get on Mm -hmm. our instrument. Um, we didn't get all the nuances of it uh, and definitely didn't get the intensity of it and the more complex arrangements. But there was some songs that you could at least connect to with a very kind of minimal amount of uh, knowledge. So, um, so yeah, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Justice for All, Black Album, all of that was very much on my radar at the time. Strangely enough, I don't recall ever owning any of the records, but it almost wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. When I was around my friends, we were listening to it so much, I kind of felt like I owned the records. But I don't think I recall ever actually going out and buying the records. I might have, you know, dubbed them on cassette or something like that. Yeah. But I spent a lot of time just kind of learning uh, some of the basic kind of riffage on there and trying to get a hold of some of the more playable lead work, and it really helped uh, kind of develop some of my sense of technique. So there's eight tracks on this album. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go through them. Well, battery starts us off here. So you've kind of got a classical guitar intro. I, I don't mm-hmm. know that that's actually like a, a nylon string or anything. I mean, it it could be. Uh, it very well could be. I mean, production techniques at the time could give you a sense of anything. But I would say more than likely it was. For me, I, I feel like what Metallica wants here is they really want the contrast. They want you mm-hmm. to kind of feel like you're kind of being lulled into something. I mean, but the notes here, there's a little bit of ominous mm-hmm. kind of thing happening there with the, I think it's a minor chord probably. Yeah, exactly. And, Everything on this record is a minor chord. But, <laughs> but yeah, the way they put them together, it definitely always kind of gives that real menacing yeah. uh, kind of feel as they're moving through those chords. And that's something that I see oftentimes in Metallica stuff is... Mm-hmm. is that sense of contrast, they want to go from quiet to loud. Uh, maybe not in the same way that something like Nirvana would do later in the in the early 90s with something like Smells Like Teen Spirit. You know, they, they like the contrast of, of either going from acoustic to kind of the heavily mm-hmm. distorted electrics or, um, or something that kind of sets the tone atmospherically or something. Yeah, and sometimes it's not even just the quiet to loud dynamic. It's the fact that, you know, they've got its own, it's, its own little section of the song mm-hmm. that really may or may not have anything to do melodically with the rest of the song. They kind of did something similar with the Ride the Lightning record on the Fight Fire with Fire opener. They had that really, actually a little more major sounding kind of intro on that one, but it was a similar style where you get this melodic uh, piece that really just kind of launches into the rest of the song in a way that initially can feel a little disconnected, but the more it kind of sits with you, it just plays to kind of the overall structure and dynamic of the song. Yeah. Lyrically, the song is kind of vintage Metallica. I feel like you get these bursts of thoughts, kind of descriptions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... It's kind of heavy-handed, <laughs> always. Yeah, it's pretty on the nose. But I feel like that's that's kind of them. I mean, they want a sense of heaviness. They want to kind of like hit you in the face mm-hmm. with noise and with words until you kind of feel something, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, part of that is that pounding out aggression, turning to obsession, cannot kill the battery. I mean, the song itself is kind of violent in 
the battery here, I, I don't get the sense is so much, you know, like a, a cell battery or something used for power, but right. know, it's uh, like a salt and battery, like, it, you know, you're getting beaten. I feel that at moments in this song. Yeah, it's definitely uh, a big pummeling, and I'm sure that would have just come from obviously emotionally their backgrounds and that sort of thing but overall i think just playing clubs and bars and working their way to the top there's a sense of those dynamics that you can't ignore that yeah i'm sure they were playing smaller clubs before this and began to play bigger uh, venues and that sort of thing but that's probably where a sense of those dynamics come from you just pummel everyone into submission yeah nearly i I know that their writing process is maybe a little different than um it's actually very similar to what mine was when I was in high school and I was trying to write songs. They would have titles for songs right. kind of in their head, and then they would have kind of a collection of riffs, and then they would kind of find what what title kind of best matches this right. this kind of music or whatever. It's and a the, real kind of juvenile approach to it, but I think that that plays to the strength of the record. I think it has this real kind of naive kind of feel on the lyrics mm-hmm. for that reason in a way that where they're literally just kind of forced and stuffed into one another. But I think that's what plays into the raw, immediate yeah. energy of it. So it, it it plays to a strength. Yeah, it's not so much that the lyrics are bad, it's just that they're obvious. There's not a whole lot of nuance there. You know, of course, you've got that intro that we discussed and then got that build that kind of feels almost like an orchestra, the way it kind of majestically kind of builds up. And then you're immediately into some of the dynamics that work their way front to back on this record. The, the rhythm guitars immediately are just pounding you in the head. Mm-hmm. And uh, in metal, uh, there tends to be a lot of focus on the virtuosity of the lead, and that's there with Kirk Hammett, uh, for better or worse in some cases. But um, revisiting this record especially, I'm uh, amazed at what James Hetfield brings to the table. Yeah really with the with the riffage and more so in kind of what's going on with his right hand, his picking hand, where um, there's so much intensity and aggression uh, that's just built into his technique. Okay. The up and down picking, oftentimes just downstroke picking, it's just so precise. It's like a brick wall. I mean, if you looked at it on a screen, it would just look like very, it would, it would probably look like a drum beat mm-hmm. on a screen. Uh, if you're looking at a recording session, you have what are called transients, which are those big kind of uh, hits mm-hmm. that you would see on a recording screen. That's probably what the guitars look like. They're just massive, pummeling, precise hits. Yeah, and kind of exactly on rhythm and meter. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he's amazing that way, besides the fact that he's singing. Right. In most cases, he's singing. And so it sounds like they double a lot of... Maybe maybe they're not literally doubling the guitar in the, in the production sure. sense. So they're both playing the, the lead riffs in some of these cases at the same time. I would hope that that's the case. The only reason I say I would hope, I would hope that Kirk contributed to the rhythms. Um, I have no reason to believe that he didn't. I just know that James, that's a real strength of his. Um, so it may not have been necessary, but I shouldn't start anything like that. Right. Kirk and, ja- and James would both play their rhythmic part, hopefully in a slightly different frequency. Maybe they would have slightly different tones, but it would definitely have to be just like surgical and precise. Otherwise, it would just be a muddy mess. Right. So James Hetfield is the lead singer and mm-hmm. and ostensibly, I guess, rhythm guitarist, although he's very accomplished in sure. himself. Uh, Kirk Hammett plays uh, all the leads and, uh, and the big guitar solos and all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, Cliff Burton plays bass mm-hmm. and Lars Ulrich is the drummer. Mm-hmm. So that's your basic Metallica setup, and um, of course, some of that gets gets shifted over the years, but we'll talk about that later. Sure. I really love kind of the musical bridge that happens in this song, where the drums almost carry us, and then the guitars dig in. I mean, you talk about the wah pedal some, but I mean, uh-huh. it, it shows up a lot on this record, and and you get an appearance here on the on track one. Yeah, track one, we get that wah-soaked uh, Hammett solo. Um, it's just part of what he does. He really likes that. I like, generally, what he does on this record. Uh, sort of the asterisk there that I would have to say is that I spend a lot of time with uh, the Black Album and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, and it gets very fatiguing by the time you get to the Black Album. He just kind of doesn't get away from it, and, right. it, and it becomes kind of a sore spot for me for Hammett. But um, I like what he does on this record, and it helps it cut through the mix a little better because typically on the guitars, you have these uh, kind of big, woofy, kind of scooped mid-rhythms. And so the wah is a great way to kind of boost that mid-frequency that's dropped in the rhythm guitars, and it helps it cut through the mix that much better. And oftentimes it can just give it that much more character, and it would probably be more reminiscent of 
uh, more classic rock kind of players like Jimi Hendrix or somebody like mm -hmm. that who would have really popularized that type of effect. So, you know, it's metal, but at the same time, it definitely has a sense of its roots in that way. So the second track is Master of Puppets. This really is kind of the quintessential Metallica song. Everything that anyone would like about Metallica, I feel like is represented here and kind of encapsulated in this really huge, actually, like eight minute and 35 second song. It really doesn't get much better than this for Metallica. So the song breaks down kind of with an intro, uh, with the, the verse chorus, then you've got this melodic guitar breakdown. You've got this kind of heavy drum bridge. And then you've got the shredding guitar solo kind of there at the end. That sort of big scale musical composition sort of thing is part of what attracted me to Metallica as a band. Uh, I guess ironically, I kind of got into some of their later stuff, kind of uh, the Black Album, the Load and Reload albums, where they really move away from more of this type of thing to more of a, a more simple kind of heavy rock structure. Yeah. But uh, but but here it, it's all it's all full form, and I found an interesting reference actually. Um, so I guess in one of the interviews I ran across, they mentioned uh, like being fans of David Bowie. And there's a David Bowie song off his album Hunky Dory called Andy Warhol. And at the beginning of that yeah. song, you know, you've got that little riff. It's almost an aside on that song, but apparently that, that was, I mean, it's almost a one-for-one one with what they're doing with some of the riffage here on this song. And that's probably one of my favorite Metallica riffs. If I'm sitting down on my guitar and kind of want to think about some Metallica, I love that. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the ascending, descending kind of riff. That's one of just my favorite overall Metallica riffs. And to think that it would have been inspired by a Bowie track just kind of makes my head explode. That's right. amazing. <laughs> and as we're moving through the verses on this song, they do a lot of kind of off time, kind of awkwardness mm -hmm. on this song that um, I think plays to a lot of strengths for Lars, which personally I think are few and far between. Uh -huh. He tends to be very rigid. Yeah, he I know you don't love him as a drummer. But. Yeah, he tends to have little to no nuance in what he's doing and no finesse, but that's Metallica. It's almost the same way when I hear, I know we talked about Fleetwood Mac recently, mm -hmm. and Mick Fleetwood tends to be a very instinctual kind of caveman drummer in a way that sometimes uh, he even has a hard time describing what he's doing. Yeah. I get that sense from Lars. He's just very in the moment, instinctual, in a way that can be a little off-putting and awkward to me sometimes. But I think we get the advantage of it on this song where you've got this awkwardly time rift and Lars just like, yeah, that feels right. And he does it yeah. in his own way to where I think in another situation, a drummer might kind of balk at it or make it try to make it do something more complicated or something like that. He just does it, and it sits perfectly in the song. Mm -hmm. So Lars is the Mick Fleetwood of Metallica. <laughs> I'm saying it right here, right now. <laughs> Thematically, this song is pretty clearly about drugs. I mean, you've got a reference to veins in verse 1, needlework in verse 2, pain, monopoly, ritual, misery, chop your breakfast in a mirror. I mean, that's... That's kind of obviously talking about cocaine usage and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. But what's interesting to me is that this song is obviously, I mean, the whole album kind of has this whole sense of kind of helplessness, themes of manipulation and and things being outside of your control, things being forced upon you as a, as a person, either in society or government or, or those sorts mm -hmm. of things. But here, I don't know, like I, I tend to think of, of heavy metal as, as being very much a part of some of the drug scenes and, and I think so, they would have been struggling with alcoholism at least but maybe drugs was right. not their choice at the time so yeah I mean as, as the band I think yeah definitely alcohol comes into play but I don't know I just you know mid 1986 I, I don't know that you're you're expecting a heavy metal mm -hmm. album to just come out and, and to to paint drug addiction in such <laughs> a clearly negative thing I mean master of puppets i mean this whole idea that that uh you know someone who is an addict is really just kind of a puppet on a string sort of thing and and so many of their choices almost even beyond them and just that kind of sense of helplessness and despair i mean it's all there in the lyrics i mean it's it's pretty strong i think that that's a great example too 
of why this album had the impact that it did and still does. It has such a keen awareness to it that can sometimes be a little on the nose, but at the same time, it's admirable that they were willing to uh, admit these things, confess these things, and write about these issues in a way that some of the other metal bands either didn't cover those topics or they would have been covering topics that were maybe off base or maybe a little too heady, Mm -hmm. things that just didn't communicate really well to kind of like just blue-collar metal fans uh, listening. Because I know that Megadeth would sometimes cover certain topics, Mm -hmm. whether it had to do with uh, witchcraft or demonic things, or that might be a symbolism for some Mm. kind of substance abuse or that sort of thing. But it was all a little more veiled and a little more heady and clever. Um, and then you had bands like Anthrax that would be somewhat socially aware, but maybe mm-hmm. they would be speaking to topics that were maybe for a very specific audience, okay. maybe a very specific kind of people group or ethnic group that they might have been speaking about. Metallica has a way of kind of breaking through all of those right. boundaries, and nearly anybody can come to a lot of the themes on this record that we'll discuss further on the other songs and find some connecting point on it in a way that the other metal bands at the time really didn't hit uh, the same way. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of metal bands that have gained a certain amount of popularity, and even even a, a name like Megadeth. I mean, I, I knew about them, I didn't know the band, but Metallica is one of the biggest bands in the world. And at some point, I mean, how do you connect with you know the world? Well, I mean, you have to be writing on on a level that a lot of people can connect with, and mm-hmm. and obviously they were able to do that. One of the interesting things to me, actually, of the differences coming from the Kill 'Em All record and then Ride the Lightning into Master of Puppets, and part of what makes Master such an interesting record for me, is that you have James Hetfield's voice now makes. Um, I feel like it really comes into his own. Apparently. Um, in reading some of the interviews, James was a little more reluctant to be a lead singer. I don't think that was really what his what his intention was originally. They just kind of needed someone to sing, mm-hmm. and he was willing to give it a shot. But you see, even listening between Ride the Lightning and Here... Like I can hear the difference in in his in his voice. Like there's there's a deep resonance there. There's more confidence there, and um, and he's just willing to use his voice more as more as an instrument. I almost think of it as maybe a necessary evil in some of the other things. Yeah, and, some of the earlier records, it just kind of has this percussive, just kind of bark right. to it. That again, in live situations, would have got him through the gig, and they could kind of communicate the song, and it would push over the mix, and people would get excited but it didn't have any sense of kind of control or nuance to it. Yeah. And this song also contains probably one of um, my favorite Hammett solos. It's it's, as many issues as I can have Mm -hmm. with Kirk Hammett and as many hang-ups. I think the solo's great on the song. It plays to all the manic aspects of the themes in this song. His note choice, the style that he's playing in, the sound. um, It's really hard to beat. Track three is The Thing That Should Not Be. This is probably one of my favorite songs on the record. Uh, I love the intro. It, it has a real bass kind of resonance, but I don't, I'm not convinced that it's actually bass. Right. Um, I'm confident it is, in fact, a guitar. Now, production-wise, it could be a number of things. Mm-hmm. But what gives it that really kind of dark, droning sound is I think they've down-tuned their guitars in some way, whether they've tuned all their strings down a whole step or whether uh-huh. they've done a drop D thing. Um, there seems to be a little bit of dispute on that and that's something I have to confess I didn't investigate too much Uh, this song uh, early on when I was learning how to play guitar just didn't grab me at the time but I've come to understand that yeah this is some sort of down tuned kind of thing and so you get this real kind of deep droning and the strings kind of ring a little more and it just gives a great ambiance but there are sections of the song that convince me of that when the pitch is actually Originally, the song starts out in kind of an E key, which is typical to the other songs, but then all of a sudden it's kind of lower hmm. later in the song, so I'm convinced there's some sort of down-tuning going on. And they really seem to really love a lot of those resonant strings. Mm-hmm. Rather than just kind of the power bar chords, they really love including kind of a resonant string within the within the riff or whatever. And that would be one of the main difference between them and what I would consider, rivalry's not the word, but definitely a yeah. close peer would be Megadeth. I'm a mm-hmm. big Megadeth fan. 
Megadeth t- tends to be a little more intelligent in the way that they move around the song structures. Okay. Uh, as far as what keys uh, they'll play in, the way Dave Mustaine writes, he seems to be take a lot more risks on kind of metal keys, and he'll play a little higher up on the neck and not just count on all the low frequencies. He can get a lot of aggression in places where Metallica really just goes down to the low right. E and chugs on that low E, and that's a great Metallica thing. They do that front to back on this record. You can get a certain amount of fatigue from mm-hmm. it, but it wouldn't be Metallica without that. Yeah. The song, of course, is inspired by the H.P. Lovecraft monster called the Cthulhu, which, of course, they had the song, uh, you know, Call of Cthulhu. On, mm, Ride the Lightning. On Rod the Lightning, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but, and I think they even have another song later, like on Death Magnet or something, that kind of references a similar thing. Yeah, I think Kirk is a big uh, kind of horror sci-fi guy, even to the degree of, um, I don't know if he got into comic books or whatever, some of his own line of some things. Mm-hmm. I could be a little off on some of that. But you can tell if you ever Google just like Kirk Hammett guitar artwork or something like right. that, a lot of what shows up on his, his guitars would all be kind of in this vein and that inspiration. Yeah. Of course, sci-fi stuff and kind of... I guess darker fantasy world stuff is not beyond the scope of of metal music. I mean, you got you have a lot of that kind of imagery on a lot of the album covers, mm-hmm. and of course the themes and many of the songs, topics, subjects of songs. And uh, there's a direct reference actually to Lovecraft in verse three with the not dead which eternal lie, stranger eons, death may die. Uh, apparently that actually is something from that that short story that he wrote about hmm. Cthulhu. But you know the Cthulhu monster in the in the Lovecraft story is a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. Of course, that's. That's the actual description there. It makes so, me think of something in Revelation or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it, all that kind of huge, kind of apocalyptic kind of imagery. And apparently within that story, too, he was worshipped by cults and feared by everyone. So obviously that fits with kind of the darker elements of metal and, and sure. something, you know, hidden, subterranean, all of those sorts of things. And all of that is in this song. Mm-hmm. And these might be some of the elements that typically someone coming to this record uh, myself included, probably when I was younger, wouldn't have immediately right. kind of connected with um, outside of the more general themes. So this would be probably one of the more kind of metal themed songs of the record. Yeah, and I guess maybe part of what I connect with it with is just the fact that it's a more narrative kind of song. I mean, it's painting another worldly thing. It's not just kind of these bursts of of ideas or emotions. Mm-hmm. But you, you can, there's there's some stuff to visualize. You, you get a sense of some things back behind it. You know, the imagery kind of points you in that way. And I love, you know, you talked about the wah earlier, yeah. but I love the wah solo it's on good this. Here. It just, it kind of has that otherworldly feeling to it. And, and this, the sound that he's able to get there, I just feel like is really, just really sets the song on a whole other level. Well, he combines it also, too. He's got the wah thing going. That's definitely his deal, but he combines it with some pretty cool kind of whammy bar work. Okay. And the whammy bar is that item that's attached to kind of the tailpiece mm-hmm. uh, where the strings come into the guitar. And so, yeah, he's kind of bending the whammy bar at the same time he's using the wah, which I, I would suspect, safe to say, would have been something that he might have toyed around with with the time, I believe, that he spent with Joe Satriani okay. uh, in preparation for this record. Of course, Joe Satriani is a virtuoso solo guitar mm-hmm. player in his own right. Uh, I don't believe he had too much output at this time in the early mid-80s. might have had an album or two, but obviously he was very well known in the metal and rock community, and Kirk spent some time with him, and he has just otherworldly kind of whammy technique yeah. that he does that can be just bizarrely musical, and so I think we get kind of a slice of that in this solo. Oh, nice. And also this sets us up for some stylings that we continue to hear in Kirk's playing mm-hmm. on into uh, Injustice for All and, of course, the Black Album. You can get a, a very... Um, I would say similar. That might be a kind word. He kind of rips himself off by the time you get to something like Wherever I May Roam. There's this kind of wah uh, tapping thing that he does. So he's wahing and he's kind of combining it with another technique. And you get these kind of uh, bizarro kind of scales. I don't know the exact names of them. But, you know, it's Kirk Hammett and it's cool, but... 
that's also kind of one of my hang-ups sometimes. Sometimes I kind of feel like he's got a fairly small bag of tricks he pulls from sometimes, unlike some of the more um, disciplined players in metal. Well, I feel like that's actually part of the Metallica story a little bit. I mean, you come from Ride the Lightning. The structure of that album, very similar to Master of Puppets, Mm -hmm. and also consequently very similar to And Justice for All. Mm -hmm. I mean, those three albums kind of work as a trilogy almost of of kind of Metallica's hang-ups, their sounds, their interests. But I also feel like it's it seems like they're also kind of refining, trying to refine mm-hmm. what they're doing with each each effort. So you get a little more precision, a little more interest, a little more dynamic kind of action going on here in Master at coming from Ride the Lightning. And I feel like that expounds even, even further in some of the tracks off of Injustice for All. And over the course of their career, I mean, they did seem to kind of copy themselves, you know, yeah. so to speak. And you can hear that at all sorts of points along along their journey. Sure. And, and again, they're not the only ones who do that. Many songwriters in different genres do that. You know, they try certain things earlier in their career, and then they continue to refine that in a way that, you know, you can't argue with the mainstream success of the Black Album. Sure. By the time we get the Black Album... Like you said, it's really just a very refined sense of items that we're getting here on Master of Puppets that communicates into a huge, just literally worldwide audience. So definitely no arguing with that. Well, track four is Welcome Home Sanitarium. Uh, Hetfield admitted that this was actually inspired by watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that movie from 1975 with Jack Nicholson, Mm -hmm. it was based on a Ken Kesey novel about a guy who kind of goes into a, um, he goes into a mental institution without any issues. And uh, I think he does it as a social experiment or something. And then over the course of being in there, just the structure of everything and, and, uh, and the treatments that are eventually given to him, he ends up becoming insane mm. because of <laughs> more because of the institution rather than because he actually had anything inherently mm. wrong. And you get that you get that same sort of sense of kind of helplessness and abuse and stuff going on in, in a song like this. And uh, structurally, uh, playing on a lot of the strengths that they've established with some of the quiet, loud dynamics, Mm -hmm. there's actually a chord that they play on this song that's the main riff of the song. I know you have the little intro, but then the Mm -hmm. main riff, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I I call that like the Metallica emotional chord. (laughs) Okay. Because they (laughs) use pretty much the same form on Fade to Black. And then they use it again on the one track for Injustice for All. Again, that could be an item that continues to tie together that kind of uh, trilogy that you mentioned. Right. I don't know how intentional or unintentional they're trying to just really hit that yeah. kind of on the nose, but it, it is what it is. It's basically the same shape, <laughs> and I feel like they go to that shape when they just they they have to get emotional for a moment. That's right. that's the emotional chord there. It, it maybe is just something as naive as they just really like some of these sounds, right? And they just want to to do them again. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I get a sense of. Almost, uh, almost innocence. Yeah, which is strange for for a metal band talking about kind of big, heavy subjects or whatever. But I almost get a sense of innocence with Metallica in an album like this. Yeah, uh, front to back, which you definitely get that sense over the course of the record. But I think that that would be another explanation for how it connected with me as a twelve, thirteen year old sure. guitar player. I would kind of see. I don't necessarily see the world the same, but I'm kind of like, kind of, I like. I hear it. and I'm like, oh. I get that. Like, I get why that's cool. I get why that's awesome. I get why they want to kind of keep doing that riff. Mm-hmm. So it can communicate in a really kind of juvenile, naive way. But again, I think that's kind of the universal aspect to it. Um, the thing that really, to me, along with the topics that are discussed in this song and the inspiration, uh, mm-hmm. Cuckoo's Nest, to me, not only is Hetfield's performance vocally um, just so dynamic mm-hmm. and great, like we haven't quite heard before it has so much control yeah. and nuance he just really sells it yeah. on these lines and by the time he gets to like the listen damn it part listen, damn it, we will to me that's when I really kind of feel it right. in a way that I hadn't in some of the other songs when he's really just kind of barking through some of the lyrics or even Master Puppet's very strong content mm-hmm. but there's something about the nuance of this song that really kind of drives home um, just kind of his passion yeah I, he did kind of unlock, I mean, I, I guess a sense of power 
in his voice and realized that that could be a very real element that doesn't have to be percussive like we kind of get in those earlier records, mm-hmm. but he could he could add it, imbue it with a sense of nuance and and subdue it in some in some points and still communicate just as expressively uh, by by toning down some of those elements. Yeah, and we get a great representation of that later with songs like Nothing Else Matters. Nothing else matters. From the Black Album. Right. Again, this could be some sense of a precursor to something like that for him to have the guts to just sit down and very simply deliver a song like that with a very dynamic vocal performance and again, very passionate and convincing. Well, Sanitarium ends uh, side one of the original uh, vinyl. So side two begins with Disposable Heroes. This is track five. And begins really viciously, I would say. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, I, I ended up stumbling upon, in my research, I stumbled upon this graduate thesis by Aaron Van Valkenburg um, oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, nobody knows him, but he, he apparently wrote a, a graduate thesis on uh, called Musical Process and the Structuring of Riffs in Metallica. And uh, he had an interesting little line. I, I mean, you know, it's real musicology sort of stuff, like digging into the, the finer nuances uh-huh. of what they're doing musically and relating that to, to various classical and Western forms of music and all of that sort of stuff. I didn't understand, you know, tons of it, but what I liked was he he had this real nice summation of kind of rock and in particularly metal's kind of emphasis on loudness. He said rock music's loudness is the primary reason it has been dismissed as noise by some. Loudness in rock music is a manifestation of physical power. In the literal sense, the loudness of rock music can be physically overpowering for the years. In a metaphorical sense, the loudness of rock music often connotes masculine toughness and intimidation and of course like that that sense of toughness and intimidation mm-hmm. i mean that that to me is always what made metal a little bit scary you know yeah. I, I always felt like i was doing something wrong when i was listening to uh, yeah. even even listening to metallica i felt like i was kind of sneaking around you know behind my parents to listen to something like this and, this song has really become one of my favorites has on the it? record in a way that um i just don't recall paying attention to it growing up. I mean, you've got that crazy intro with the triplets there at the beginning. Yeah. So basically what a triplet is, I'm not like a great kind of musicologist or anything or, or whatever you would call somebody who knows a lot about music <laughs> as far as like actual Theorist. nuance. Like the guy who ever, the, the, uh, <laughs> Van Valkenburg. I'm not, I'm not a Van Valkenburg. So basically what you've got, if the count's gone one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, mm-hmm. a triplet's like, ba 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 And so like it kind of throws you off a little bit initially because it just sounds kind of like chaos. Yeah, like too much is happening there. Right, and you're kind of like, where's the rhythm going? But it's really, it's very fixed and it's and it's very intentional in what they're doing. But by the time they get to that single note, bum 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 or whatever that is, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot more notes than I can actually pick out with my mouth right now. I'd like to hear a good vocal performance of it. <laughs> right, but, a little um, acapella group doing some Metallica songs. Exactly. They need that in the next. What is that? Perfect pitch or Pitch Perfect or whatever movie. <laughs> That's one of my favorite riffs on the whole record, and it's just a single note, and it's all that Hetfield right hand. Again, Hammett may have contributed to that, but I'm pretty sure Hetfield was kind of the beast behind that. Yeah. And so that right hand on that single note, just bum ba bum 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 ba bum it's it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, in this song, you get a lot of speed. Apparently, in the pre-chorus, like it gets up to as many as 220 beats per minute. Um, I read that. I didn't actually count it, so I, oh, I don't know got, if that's true. You pulled out your app on your phone, your metronome app. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At some points, it sounds like it may even get slightly faster. Um, you you, you kind of get that push and pull, and maybe this is where uh, you talk about um, Lars's drumming. Mm-hmm. You know, they they move back and forth between different tempos within songs, and this is one of those those times. Yeah, and I think this is a great place for it. There's a certain fun's not really the right word in this song, but I kind of it has kind of an ease in a Metallica song that sounds slightly less calculated, mm-hmm. although it's very right on and syncopated. Sure. It just kind of has just kind of natural quality to it, and um, to such a degree that where as much as I kind of throw Lars under the bus or, or or whatever, it has one of his most dynamic portions of the song there's a part around 405 where the song kind of breaks and they go on that why am i dying mm-hmm. or whatever he actually goes over to a bell or something why am I dying? it's 
pretty simple, but all of a sudden it's way more dynamic than some of what we've already been introduced to. On right, record. that's a character you don't get with him ever. Yeah, and I'm not sure we get it again on the album. So it's 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 a real kind of gem right there where it sits. I mean, lyrically, you've got all this kind of look back, I realize nothing have I done, left to die with only friend, alone I clench my gun. You know, I mean, it's just this... It's moving downward, which kind of points to the inevitability of the subject's demise. So you've got this whole uh, kind of the music is kind of moving downward at the same time. Back to the front, of mm-hmm. course, that repeated the group refrain. Great on this. You know, I mean, this is like, you know, they're they're kind of burning their uh, their draft card on this one. <laughs> yeah, which again is a very it's a very astute kind of observation and topic for them to dig into in a way that is mostly intelligent. I, I right. think they're bringing kind of a good conversation to the table on this and not being terribly flippant about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not, pop culture is not um, without its references to kind of the the human cost of war, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, all all kinds of war movies have dealt with that. And even, you know, going back to the 40s and some of the post-World War II movies with things like The Best Years of Our Lives or the post-World War I movie, um, The Roaring Twenties. With, uh, with James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. I mean, these dealt with guys who were coming back from the war, coming settling back into life in the States, and just kind of finding there's not really a place for them there. I mean, obviously, you know, this song, Disposable Heroes, is much more on kind of the dark side and just like, you know, a warm body who holds a gun, who knows where to point it mm-hmm. and to shoot, you know. But that sense of human wreckage is something that um, that really resonates, and I feel like it's it's always a good point for an artist to kind of tackle if if they can do it with a sense of of honesty and a, a bigger sense of some of the things that are going on there. And it kind of speaks to a little bit of uh, some of the imagery and you see on the cover, of course, you know, ultimately the master of puppets, the drug references and that sort of thing you right. see with the hands and that sort of thing on the cover. But then you also have those gravestones that yeah. appear to be some sort of probably military. Yeah, just uh, a field of crosses, kind of unmarked graves sort of thing. Exactly. And so, which again would be just a, one more kind of unexpected theme to come from a metal band where I get the sense that generally people who don't like metal or understand metal assume that everything just sounds like Cannibal Corpse. Right. And every band in metal is just coming to the table right. to describe uh, dismemberment. Yeah, and blood, that, rotting. And like just all these demons. Grossly, nastily sexual kind of things or what? Just awful things. Mm-hmm. And that happens in metal. I'm not a fan of that. Um, Metallica doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. And so for them to come to the table with a song like this that's actually articulating um, the disposability of lives and war and that sort of thing, when you typically, again, people would imagine... I don't know, you think they're coming to the table and just want to kill everybody. Of course, the first record's called Kill Em All. I mean, <laughs> right. there's other themes there. Yeah. But just the misunderstanding and kind of the caricature of how people see metal. Well, the the, fir- the original title for Kill Em All was Metal Up Your Ass or something. So. Right. And I remember that T-shirt. It had like a toilet, I think, and like a, a some sort of blade or something coming up from the oh, toilet. Boy. Yeah. So, so they, they went a different that. direction, and now they're the biggest band in the world. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, probably a lot to be said for, uh, for not calling your first album that. Yeah. So track six is called Leper Messiah. You know, when I was a kid listening to the song, you know, I say I was a kid, I was in high school, but, you know, I I always skipped this track just because I was kind of afraid of it. You know, as a church kid, you Mm -hmm. know, anything that kind of had like heavily kind of sacrilegious kind of ideas, I just kind of generally tried to steer clear of anyway. Uh, you know, listening to it now, I kind of realize, well, this song is really just about TV preachers. Sure, televangelists, all that. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's kind of, that's what it's talking about, and it's not so much like a reference to Christ necessarily. I mean, obviously, there's some issues with kind of organized religion, evangelicalism in particular. Um, James Hetfield actually comes out of a Christian scientist right. background, which right. is neither Christian nor science. Uh, I don't know how the name kind of comes together, but apparently one of the, the major facets of that that faith practice or that religion or whatever is that uh, that people don't seek medical treatment. Um, they believe in, in, I guess, some ostensibly some form of faith healing or some form of, uh, you know, a higher power kind of kind of healing their bodies. And apparently his mom got cancer at some point, didn't seek any kind of treatment or anything hmm. and died. And you get a lot of that kind of yeah. 
anger and you know the god that failed is the song off yeah. of uh, the black album so he deals with those sorts of things uh, at several points and so obviously a lot of frustration with some of the personal baggage he's got some frustration going back but you know i mean in the mid 80s you've had the deregulation of tv that happened in the early 70s that kind of gave rise to a lot of the the televangelists that pop up your jim and tammy faye bakers yeah. your uh, your jimmy swaggerts yeah. and of course those were also um, noted by um, by particularly uh, egregious scandals mm-hmm. that kind of uh, you know hit the tabloids and and everyone just kind of saw the hypocrisy of all of it. But so much of it was just a money grab. So much of it was was actually seeking to build this kind of little kingdom. Um, you know, with their God needs a God needs you to to pay for this satellite so we can pump our station into all these countries in Africa and, and that's all sickening. I mean, and you still see that Jim Baker stuff with him selling that rice or whatever those. <laughs> right. He's out can, of, he's out of prison and now like doing apocalyptic kind of bunker. Yeah, you can YouTube that stuff. It'll blow your mind. It's so, it's funny and just terribly sad at the same time. Uh, James Hetfield said, symbolism is pretty big for me and the cross for me represents balance and connection with a higher power. I love some of the religious stories because whether they are real or not, they are awesome and inspiring stories. So that kind of gives you kind of the depth of his right. religious interest, which is just sort of like, you know, the Bible has some cool stuff in it. You know, religion has some some interesting things, um, but he, he doesn't really seem to, to land anywhere in particular. Right. He probably views it something similar to like mythology or something. It just kind of looks cool and sounds cool and yeah, whatever. And the scope of this record... This song's not bad. You know, it's kind of a cool song, but it's probably my least favorite. You just get some of the more unflattering aspects of the musicianship here. I don't like the uh, very muddy kind of double kick drum work mm-hmm. uh, from Lars. That really kind of clarifies more on a track like one later on where we get that very yeah. memorable double kick part that's just nice and clear and kind of on point. Um, this song's just kind of a mess, and then you get these, you get this awful Hammett solo that really just sounds like some sort of wanker, wah-soaked finger exercise is all it is. <laughs> it's completely unmusical. Yeah. Um, I just don't enjoy this song very much. I, that's sometimes you get that with. I almost feel like some of the solos are almost just like. Okay, I've got my scales, you know, just kind of, yeah, yeah, just go right up and down the scales. I didn't know that if you liked the song or not, and it's not one of my favorites either. No. I feel like the song is actually the basis for a lot of what they will do later in their career, actually, with some of the load and reload stuff, um, where it's it's kind of, it, it's not a really complex song, and the riff is kind of cool or whatever. It's not necessarily a game changer in anybody's world of, of cool riffs. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of a B-side riff almost. You get a lot of that on, on some of the load records with, like, Wasting My Hate. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like, to me, that, I don't know, this almost paves the way for some of the, I guess, digression of, of Metallica. So it's it's already here, I feel like, even within Master, some yeah. of the limitations. Yeah, because some of the depth that we get on tracks like Master of Puppets and Sanitarium, we get the opposite of that on a track like Leper Messiah, which is tackling an intriguing subject, mm-hmm. but in a way that's just very juvenile. Like, with that, what is it, the lie, lie, right. lie? I mean, it's kind of cool, the group vocals, it's real metal and all, but... It doesn't have the impact of when you hear master, master, and stuff right. like that, or, or back to the front, you know, all the group vocals that you get. This is not a great version of that, and thankfully, we don't get the length that we get on some of the other ones, so I think we're spared a little bit of misery <laughs> on this one. Right. Well, track seven is the instrumental. It's called Orion. You, you got an instrumental track on... Uh, on Ride the Lightning as well, which was also a, a very long song mm-hmm. in Call that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interestingly, they, they changed the track order, though, in uh, in that one, because Call of Cthulhu is the last song on Ride the Lightning, mm-hmm. whereas here you kind of get this... I, I like I like the tracking that they do here, where they do the, yep. the big instrumental, and then they've kind of got um, one last song to kind of close out the record. And... Um, I don't know. It's a really cool instrumental track. It's one of the things yeah. that attracted me to Metallica. Really, was was that they they did go for some of these big instrumental pieces. 
Yeah, I think it's so amazingly melodic and memorable, and it really reminds me of what sets Metallica apart from some of the other metal mm -hmm. acts at the time. You know, it features most everything that I tend to love about a great metal song. It has cool and very playable riffs and more or less straightforward rhythms. Uh, I mean, it really kind of reminds me of what I originally would have gravitated to about Metallica that I mentioned earlier. There is just a sense in which, even as a novice musician, I could connect to it in some way and find some piece of it that I could kind of emulate and get a hold of and run with. Yeah, and, and Cliff Burton, the uh, the bass player, was heavily... Um, I don't know that he exclusively wrote this one, but he had a, a big hand in kind of crafting some of the riffs mm -hmm. and, uh, and some of the, the musical items on this song. Uh, sadly, during the tour for uh, this album, when they were in, I think, Sweden or, or some some country in Europe, they mm -hmm. um, they had a tour bus accident and, yeah. and he was in a bunk and he got thrown from the vehicle and crushed mm -hmm. uh, by the bus. And so um, this is the last uh, record that Cliff Burton does with, with yeah. Metallica, obviously. And uh, Jason Newstead eventually comes on and uh, ends up taking over. But, you know, they sing his praises uh, in interviews and things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, clearly... He really seemed to bring a lot of the, the the bigger kind of musical ideas to the band, whereas I don't think James and Kirk were necessarily as as you know proficient musically, at least as, as expansive maybe in their in their tastes or whatnot. But yeah, I think you even get a sense. I would go so far as to say some of my hangups later in their career are possibly kind of a stunted growth mm -hmm. um, from Cliff yeah. uh, dying, of course, and, and no longer being in the band. Um, I think he gave so much to them and imparted so many concepts to them of just a sense of melody in what they do, uh, the harmonies that you get, yeah. that they continue to do in their arrangements. But they do them in a way to where they um, kind of, they don't really expand too terribly much on it later in their career. It's kind of like they took the gifts that Cliff gave them of some of that and they kind of don't do too much else with them. Right. They could have been a very different band, perhaps, in some ways, if uh, if Cliff hadn't uh, been killed. What Cliff's doing on this song specifically is very unique. There's a a, a passage, a melodic passage, around a minute forty-one that, which, in passing, I kind of just assumed was a guitar, but I understand now that it's um, just a uniquely kind of toned, fuzzy bass. And so all of a sudden, he's kind of cutting through the mix doing that. Um, we had already gotten a sense of that sound and that approach on For Whom the Bell Tolls. From Ride the Lightning. Right. Which, again, in passing, you could kind of assume it's a guitar because he kind of right. gets way up high on the neck and he's doing this melodic thing yeah. that you would typically associate with that. But I think that those are great examples, along with what happens in the rest of this song, of how unique Cliff was not only to Metallica, but just kind of metal in general, probably drawing more influence from like a Rush, mm -hmm. specifically uh, Getty Lee. Right. Uh, of course, being a bass player, fronted the band Rush. He had a very unique approach to his instrument. He sang, of course. They were much more what I would call progressive rock, Yeah, what most people would call progressive <laughs> rock. Sure. And um, I believe they actually sought Getty Lee yeah, to did. produce this record. Yeah, they actually did seek him out, but apparently they couldn't work out the uh, the scheduling or whatever, and so they went back with Fleming Rasmussen, uh, and and they recorded with him again, and they had done Ride the Lightning with him as well. So, um, yeah, actually, the the Rush reference is really good because I hear um, there's a Rush track off of Permanent Waves called Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> And mm -hmm. I had never made the connection with Rush and Metallica until until reading that Getty Lee reference. And, you know, I hear that song and I can hear all kinds of ways in which they're kind of dipping their toes maybe a little bit into kind of some of the prog rock things and just bringing some of the, the more intricate structures that you mm -hmm. get in some of that music into the, the world of thrash metal that they're kind of living with. Mm -hmm. I spent a little bit of time with Rush. I think I might have had like a greatest hits. I, in the early mid-90s, you know, you know, True Confessions, I went through a big <laughs> dream theater phase. Okay. And in the midst of that, they would talk about bands like Kansas and Rush mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So yeah. I spent a little bit of time, things like uh, Spirit of the Radio and things mm -hmm. like that, which is from that same record. Right. Uh, 
And so, yeah, I can definitely get a strong sense of that, that that would have been a heavy inspiration to them. Things like, uh, I believe Lars and James actually chased uh, Deep Purple maybe around Europe or something around this time following their tour. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, a strong sense of kind of their influence and inspiration into these songs. You know, so overall, Orion just has a great dynamic to it. It's amazing that it sits on this album in mm-hmm. a way that's way more risky than some of the other metal bands at the time to really kind of expose themselves musically to play something that's much more kind of mid-tempo. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really thrashy about this at all. But there's this funny moment uh, around the end of the song. I mean, talk about strange inspiration. <laughs> I could swear I hear a touch of Hotel California <laughs> around six minutes and 44 seconds. It kind of does this, and it kind of reminds me of, anyway. So maybe they were closet Eagles fans. (laughs) The Eagles of death metal. Oh, right on. So track eight is Damage Incorporated. Um, I kind of like the atmospheric intro, and then you get the guitar swells. Mm -hmm. Really, the song... Uh, kind of almost bookends with battery. Yeah, and I agree. I like that kind of tracking choice to to pick another short, kind of very fast, kind of speed thrash song to kind of bookend this this really pretty expansive album. It's pretty crazy. Just you hear a track like Orion, and you think it's kind of drawing to a close. Like right. I don't want to say they've run out of steam, but they're kind of giving you kind of a reprieve, and mm-hmm. they just don't. It's like just brick wall all over again, just right smacking you in the face for the final song. I mean, this song is obviously kind of touching on issues of corporatism and that sort of thing, and uh, I, I don't know that that was a major theme in a lot of stuff in the in the mid to late '80s. But um, you know, here you, here you have it. Maybe Metallica was the first one. Yeah, I doubt it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of on the nose. You know, but yeah, whatever. Damage Inc. Yeah, I don't have much to say. About <laughs> okay. <this song. laughs> I just it just is what it is. Right. Did they come back around to like an ink kind of thing later on? Garage Ink, Garage Incorporated, yeah. Which was a combination of the uh that earlier the original garage stage, yeah. Yeah, and then and then the, a later the page, kind of yeah. yeah, turn the page kind of <laughs> a bunch of covers like Whiskey yeah. in a Jar and, and that okay. sort of thing. So digging back through this album, I mean, it had been years since I've <laughs> sat down with Metallica. Sure. Uh, me too. I confess, I had fun. It took me a while to kind of get back into kind of what is going on here musically and, and, and to kind of appreciate some of the dynamics of it because, you know, the guitar sounds are the same across yeah, the whole it, thing. It's, it's not, pretty static. It's not like a Smashing Pumpkins kind of melancholy where you've got all sorts of guitar effects and... You hear all sorts of, there's a real complex kind of dynamic of sounds mm-hmm. and things that he's going for. I mean, it, it sounds like they kind of find what they like and they do it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how it is kind of every time. But, you know, I, I had fun with it and I never dug into the lyrics at all. And, um, you know, can't say I found any major revelations, but I did enjoy it. I, I, I feel like I gained a little extra appreciation for some of why Metallica has had the the staying power and the resonance that they've they've had obviously over the years. Yeah, and like you said, digging into the content again doesn't change too much about the record, but spending a little bit of time with the content, I might be more likely to actually kind of sing along mm-hmm. and not just listen to the guitar parts. I mean, I think there's some good melodies in there, things like Sanitarium and that sort of thing. But like we already said, there's a sense of kind of static sonics yeah. on the record. As a guitar fan, um, there are things about the guitars I love about this album and things that are very fatiguing Mm -hmm. to me. Um, And that's just kind of a Metallica thing. They like those big, woofy, kind of scooped out kind of sounds when oftentimes when I really want to hone in and get some great thrashy metal, I tend to go to Megadeth. Mm -hmm. I tend to either listen to the Rust in Peace album, which I think came out around 89, songs like Holy Wars and Tornado of Souls or uh, in the early 90s, maybe 1991, they released an album called Countdown to Extinction. I think there's some headiness in some of the content. Um, It's a lot more nuanced in some of the stylings. The lead playing from Marty Friedman is just light years beyond what Kirk Hammett does. But I'll admit, at the same time when I'm listening to those records, 
Metallica always preceded or typically preceded those records with something that made a much bigger statement. Mm -hmm. So I hate to say this about Megadeth and Dave Mustaine Mm -hmm. in particular, him being originally a member of Metallica uh, around Kill 'Em All. I always feel like he's just kind of a step behind Metallica. Mm. And I say that just because I kind of get the sense in the mid-late 80s, early 90s, that was definitely kind of a sense of rivalry there, right. at least commercially. Yeah. At least in the tabloids, it looked real good to kind of look at them that way. Um, so as much as I like Megadeth and prefer some of the Sonics over Metallica, I always feel like they're a touch behind and just failed to really achieve that universal status, of course, that uh, Metallica did. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue with an album like this. It really legitimizes and seems to kind of bring to the mainstream um, a genre that that really was very fringe in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. uh, at that time. And, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, everyone knows who Metallica is. Whether or not they've ever listened to them, they know the name Metallica. They, They know that there was a band out there that's huge. Yeah, and as clunky as I think Lars is on drums sometimes, he's the opposite as far as a businessman. I believe he actually trademarked the logo. Just <laughs> everything about Metallica, right. like I'm pretty sure Lars more or less kind of owns. Yeah. And so everybody recognizes the cover of Master of Puppets. They probably have some idea of Ride the Lightning, the Black... I mean, just the yeah. iconography. It's all iconic. I mean, yeah, that just populates our culture with Metallica is just kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, so even if some of the stuff seems a little juvenile or naive, um, they seem pretty savvy in a lot of ways. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Completist. In our next podcast, we will look at the Foo Fighters album, The Color and the Shape. If you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a review. And you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or SoundCloud. And you can always find us at our website, completistpodcast.com.